podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. A Scottish football podcast that isn't obsessed with just two teams. Niche nonsense. Or surprisingly brilliant. You decide. The Terrace Scottish Football Podcast. The cult Scottish football podcast now adapted into a hit TV show. Search the Terrace Scottish Football Podcast on your chosen podcast player now. Okay, so what what a season that has been. Uh, what a bizarre end to it. Is it the end? Well, who knows? Um, hopefully we'll have football back soon. Bundesliga is back up and running. John Bruin tells us a little bit about that. Um, we have a little look back at football managers from... Uh, foreign lands in the 90s and 2000s. Plenty of interesting stories in there in keeping with our recent run. Uh, it's been nice having John and Gareth on. I must say a big thanks to them both for joining during quarantine. I think um, I hope they've enjoyed it as much as I have and as much as you guys have. Um, so hopefully we'll be back soon. Uh, let's just see where we go with the whistleblowers. But um, certainly uh, this is the last one in this run. So um, yeah, keep an ear out and be back soon. But please do enjoy this and, and let us know what you think. Cheers. Okay, welcome to the Whistleblowers. This will be the last in this run. Uh, it's supposedly the last one in the season, but, but, but who knows when that is or what that is. Um, but uh, in keeping with our recent run, particularly quarantine, uh, delighted to be uh, joined by our two regulars, uh, Gareth Thompson. Hi. How are you, mate? I'm very well, thank you. I just uh, just had some chilli while wearing a white T-shirt. So basically, we're at the point in lockdown where I'm just throwing all risk to the wind anarchy yeah I mean that's throwing a t-shirt away territory yeah I mean especially with my form it's uh, I haven't seen a white t-shirt so I've I've yet to not stain bravado oh yeah (laughs) excellent thanks for your update you actually sound very clear tonight as well so um, have you you had an upgrade I have I'll be honest I'm using my uh, PlayStation headset so uh when I'm not becoming a uh, a pro FIFA player, apparently I can now podcast uh, with crystal clarity. Well, that's it. Well, I, a shame it's the last one of the season then. Um, <laughs> delighted to say we're also joined by um, John Bruin. John, great to have you back. Good to be back. I'm going to miss this place. <laughs> Whatever it is. But yes, <laughs> indeed. What, um, uh, John, what have you been up to? You've been, you've been busier out of, out of the three of us, I would imagine, this weekend. Football's back. Football was back. Yeah, football. I don't know what it was, but I don't know the German for the next bit. Um, but yeah, um, yes, um, doing my usual weekend duties over the uh, week, uh, weekend at The Guardian, and they asked me to do the match reports off TV, which is a skill that I've developed over the years. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, so I, I got to have, well, as good a view as anybody did, really, apart from the 200 people allowed in the stadium. Uh, yeah, so I've got uh, Dortmund v Schalke, uh, which took a while to get used to, uh, but it, it was quite clear. You don't need a, a crowd, a baying crowd to, ship to see just how good Dortmund were in that game. And uh, Dortmund team, actually, they were missing quite a few big players as well. Um, and then Bayern uh, at Union Berlin, which... It's it's a small thing in the in in the midst of what we're, what everybody's going through. But that Union Berlin, uh, you know, they're up in the Bundesliga for I think it's the first time, 
and they're well known for their fans. You know, German football's ultras are so. I mean, I mean, I've go to Germany quite a lot actually. A friend of mine lives over there, and uh, you know, when you go to German football, I've got to say this: you don't really go and watch the football. I've never found the standards to be absolutely amazing. It's good games. Uh, but uh, it's the fans that, 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 that lead the way, really. That's why you want to go and all the able to drink in the stands and so on. And it was just a pity that Union's fans weren't there to see them take on Bayern. And Union Berlin played quite well, but Bayern won 2-0 fairly efficiently. Um, there's another round of games this weekend. And then next week, uh, there's going to be the Classica between Dortmund and Bayern. Uh, which is one of those games that you would tune into normally. Um, but you probably tune into it normally because of the noise and all the sense of occasion. So it's going to be interesting to see what that's like. Um, but can I watch football behind closed doors? I think the answer is yes, though sometimes it helps if you get paid to do it. You're doing yourself a slight disservice there, John. Uh, being a loyal Mac fan... Uh, I mean, we used to play with literally no one in the crowd. And and to be honest, uh, the standard was absolutely terrible. So um, <laughs> you're a tolerant man. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, let's, let's be fair to Mac. Yeah, I mean, when I first started going to Mac in the late 80s, the crowds would be 800 or so, yeah. Um, and in the Football League, they're probably, you know, a good crowd would be 2,000. Um, and... But it just wouldn't be the same, though, Macclesfield Town, without the belly aching of the locals just, <laughs> just screaming at the likes of, well, you. So, I did I did enjoy how close you you get to that point where at, at all of those grounds you can hear individual voices, but yeah. Mac, you can see the faces as well. And it's um, it just adds a certain it just adds a certain extra to it. But there you go. Gareth, you, are you before the lockdown, were you ever uh, frequenting... Any local football? Did you ever go to Dulwich Hamlet? Because I know that's probably, probably the, the equivalent. I suppose Palace. You've been to Palace as well around your way? Yeah, Palace is my local and it's about 800 metres away. So I, I, I've been logged a few games there and then sort of lower down the the pyramid. I, I definitely have been to a few Hamlet games. I, probably the, the, the non-league team I would most uh, uh, associate with though is, is Bromley, who I went to go see. Uh, quite a few times in my in my younger days, and uh, you know, very much the sort of classic rural Kent uh, Kent team. They're, they're a good club and a nice outfit. So yeah, those are my uh, the ones I have affinity with. And I, I watched some Bundesliga as well. I perversely I decided that I was going to support uh, RB Leipzig, which uh, ever the contrarian. Um, uh, yeah, apparently I'm breaking all sorts of. Uh, code of football but i watched the first half of the dortmund game and it was clear that they were so you know domineering so in control i, I switched over to the uh the second half of uh leipzig struggling along to a 1-1 draw and i fear their title hopes may have uh, may have been dashed within 90 minutes of the restart well if that's if that's what your support does to a team gareth and um, <laughs> i mean in keeping with the tottenham ethos oh, yes. i would imagine i'll just make a point about dulwich hamlet and macclesfield town um, yes. it's not necessarily a view i hold but i actually seen that fixture they played each other in the fa cup three or four years ago hmm. uh, and um one of these things is that uh when a big club comes to town uh the big fans of the big club tend to lord it around and show like what you know, 
how hardcore they are in big clubs. That's a rare game where I saw Macclesfield Town fans loading it around with their superior status of being the big shots um, <laughs> at Dulwich Hamlet. Um, and actually, uh, what I, I caught, one of them uh, I, I saw throwing beer around the, uh, the the clubhouse or whatever, and I told him off for doing that. And he said, you know, call me a, a Cockney wanker. And then when I pointed out that I was from that, <laughs> and he actually heard my accident, he apologised and said, right. So, yeah, they got a bit of, they got a bit drunk and above themselves, the seven fans that travelled down from Mac for that one. Yeah, nice. I love it. Love it. And on the other side of the fence, from being a player that played, not necessarily in those matches, but in matches in empty stadia, uh, after frequenting the reserves... For many clubs, for uh, periods of time, there's a weirdness about it, but there is something that you, the standard of games can still be good, and the tempo has to be right, and everything has to be set. But these guys have been itching to get back and playing. Very often, these reserve games were marked by four senior pros that didn't want to be there, fifteen-year-old kids that were terrified. So, um, if you get the right blend in those reserve games, well, we had some absolute belters, and. You see, we'd sometimes look around and just find it quite amusing. You'd be in these stadiums that were just, you know, even if it was like in the lower leagues, but we'd play decent clubs, you know. Uh, um, uh, so you'd be, you'd be in 15,000, 20,000-seater stadiums, no one there. But at the same time, there was still like, well, you know, I still played at Carrow Road or I still played at so-and-so and it was at the Majeski <laughs> or whatever. It, it's, I still chalked it off. Yeah. yeah. There we go. There we go. Well, listen, lads. I'll steer us back onto the topic that um, we're going to we're going to have a little look at today. Last week we spoke about um, uh, the foreign imports, and it was mainly we focused on the the nineties, maybe late eighties players that came to England, uh, made an impression, uh, and kind of how they changed the culture of the game in the country. So it, it, the natural fit would be to look at how managers changed. The shift was p- perhaps a little later, uh, and, I'll, and I'll let you take over me here, but. Um, the, you know, did the players come first? I mean, like perhaps one of the most famous ones we might start with is is Aussie who came over. So um, uh, I don't know who wants to pick up from that point, but uh, have any of you been doing any digging around Aussie's Aussie's uh, career? Well, I mean, uh, Gareth will be much better acquainted with Aussie's Tottenham uh, career, such as he was, yeah. than I will. Uh, but um, yeah, Aussie are dealers, you know. Uh, arrived in England in 1978 after the World Cup and has never really left. Um, and he he had a reasonable, he'd had a reasonable time as manager of, uh, I think it was Swindon he was at, mm. wasn't he? And then Newcastle, he had a sort of high-scoring Newcastle team. Uh, but, I mean, uh, if you recall, it was Newcastle were at one of their lowest ebbs ever. Uh, it was when they turned to Kevin Keegan. And that's when they sacked Ozzy Ardiles. Um and then uh, then he ended up uh, at Tottenham, which um, is still a, still a decision I can't really understand. He he wasn't a good enough manager for a, a club like Tottenham, but um, he was their manager because he was Ozzy Ardiles, one of the club's well great players of the of, of that era. Um, he, you know, Ozzy Ardiles is. Uh, is he a very educated man? Um, and uh, you know, took took to English football far better than Ricky Villa, his, his, his still his close friend. Um, but he, I don't know, it just as a manager, 
the, the way that, I mean, you, you know, the Tottenham song, uh, you know, Ozzy's going to Wembley. Uh, that whole song is predicated on the fact that Ozzy is a fairly unassuming little bloke that barely speaks English and uh, is not um, not the most prepossessing of characters. Well, unfortunately, that appears to be how he managed his teams. Mm. Um, and yeah, um, a great guy by all accounts, but um, not a great manager. Well, he he he, he was definitely uh, fine in one half of the pitch. I, I think you know the. The sort of cliche about you know all he cared about was attacking not defending was was probably true. It was yeah. uh, you know he he was very much uh, you know comparative to Keegan in that sense. Um, I've never seen a team with such a sort of dividing line between attack and defence. It was almost like two completely separate units. Mm. Um, yeah, this is a man who thought that uh, Colin Calder would, would make a reasonable holding midfielder. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just, yeah. Even to me, at the age of like fifteen, was just unfathomable. Um, but it was, uh, it, it was interesting. You know, he he had a, you know, a year and a season and a half reign. In the first season, he nearly took Spurs down. He wasn't helped by the fact that Sheringham had a, a pretty uh, long term knee injury that kept him out for most of the season. But um, and the only player we ended up replacing with at the time was Ronnie Rosenthal, who you know obviously etched his way into Spurs history eventually. But um, yeah, when he was loaded up with the big guns for that following season, we talked about another podcast, the 94-95 season with, uh, you know, Sheridan, Clinton, Anton, Dimitrescu, Popescu, uh, yeah. Barnby. It was, it, it was disastrous. The first game of the season was an exciting 4-3 victory over Sheffield Wednesday with a superb... Uh, you know, Klinsman go and, you know, trademark celebration. Yeah. And it didn't really get much better after that. There was one game, the next game I think was actually a midweek game against Ipswich, and we, we ran right over them, and Dimitrescu looked like the best player on the pitch. And that was kind of it. You know, after that, there was defeats to uh, in the League Cup to, um, was it Notts County at the time, I think? Steve Cherry and co. Um, and, yeah, he didn't last, uh, he didn't last past Halloween. Uh, which, which is a shame, like you said, it's it's always disappointing when the sort of club legends kind of tar their name a little bit. But enough time has passed and he's so beloved that, you know, he, he's a regular at Spurs. He's obviously always welcome back and, and loved. So it did eventually probably work out long term. But, yeah, I, I think more more than being a foreign manager, he was a you know old Spurs boy, which is why he got the job. Well, that's 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 the excellent point. Let's come back to we look, we talked about a player last week. We talked about Dwight York and how we recognise him as one of our own. It's like you know mm-hmm. one of the Premier League, one of the ever presents. He's like he's come through, and you forget that he's come from somewhere else because he's part of the fabric of of successes by British teams, but also just you know a great a great player. And it's funny sometimes you just forget that kind of impact. The other the other managers that will go on to that perhaps were more pronounced as foreign, I suppose they, they they played in this country as well, but very much felt more like exotic like exotic sort of signings. We've got them from the mainland. So let's let's move on to say Rude Hullet. So um I remember watching from the terraces when I, I used to go and watch Plymouth when I was young. And I think would I be right in saying he was there at the same time as Mark Hughes? Is that right, John? Yes, uh, in the summer of 95, uh, Chelsea's big signings were Mark Hughes, who had fallen out with Manchester United, uh, and, and Rude Hullet, yeah. So, actually, two veterans, 
But <clears throat> this was a sort of changing face of Chelsea. Uh, the club became a bit more cosmopolitan in outlook. I mean, Mark Hughes doesn't sound that cosmopolitan, but uh, as Gareth recalled actually last week or a couple of weeks ago, uh, he played at Barcelona and Bayern Munich. Um, it's a national class striker. But Rude Hullet, uh, when he arrived, was just this... Um, he, he was a phenomenon, wasn't he, in English football? Mm. I'm yeah. not sure that he was absolutely brilliant. Um, his best days were behind him. He got some pretty bad injuries when he was playing for AC Milan. He played for Sampdoria as well, of course. Um, he, But it was just the fact that we had a player who had been that good at that point. Yeah. Um, and that's why he got the job, because he, he had that... I mean, he got the job because Glenn Hoddle became England manager. Um and uh, he, he, there was a point, wasn't there, when it looked as if uh, he was going to be a really good manager. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it just never quite. It well, it actually, the, the way that he fell out with, uh, if I recall correctly, he fell out with Chelsea because he wanted to retire as a player, and he was player manager, and so uh, the club at that time was uh, the. the infamous uh, Ken Bates yes. uh, and let's leave it there because Ken likes a legal letter um, <laughs> but yes, the, the infamous Ken Bates I think that the decision was and the chief executive at the time was Colin Hutchinson and of course at the time Matthew Harding was involved in the club as well um, was that he would receive less money to be manager than he would, would have done as a player and I think that caused a dispute and then, of course, he was replaced by Gianluca Vialli, um, who similarly had arrived at the club towards the end of his playing career and then became, uh, actually, uh, you know, if you, if you talk of figures that changed Chelsea, um, Vialli was one of those because successful player um, and a pretty successful manager until the wheels came off, really. Um, he's been in the news the last couple of weeks, actually, hasn't he? Because... He's done a few interviews around a book that he's written and talks about his recovery from pancreatic cancer. But um, it's funny because Chelsea, uh, in that sort of uh, cool Britannia period of the, of the mid to late 90s, sort of recreated that King's Road of the 70s thing with, you know, continental talent and uh, really changed Chelsea as a club and changed its outlook such that, I mean, the club was still owned by Ken Bates uh, and co. till 2003, but really changed the outlook and it became a European club as a result of that. I think uh, you make a good point there. You talk about Vialli became a good manager and Huller almost did the, the thing for her. I, I don't know how much, to what extent, Huller, or Huller sorry, inherited the good work that um, that Glenn Hoddle had done because you would assume that the, there was a lot of work, a lot of good work that Glenn Hoddle must have done, particularly yeah. with Ken Bates as chairman, to kind of get people thinking slightly differently, um, and also like just modernising that club. And then Hill winning the, he, did he win the FA Cup? That was their first trophy for what 20, 20 odd, twenty five odd years. Well, I think the manager in '97 was Rude Hullet when they won yeah. the FA Cup. So. Sorry, that's what I mean. Yes, Hullet won the FA Cup, which is like the first trophy. So he broke that seal, and then yeah. almost Viali took over. And I think Viali won a couple of things straight away 
Cup Winners' it's, Cup, yeah, and a League Cup. I think that's right. And yeah. that was off the back of Hullet's squad because he almost just inherited that quite late. Yeah. So it's like you have this you have this kind of legacy that starts, you know, that really did set Chelsea off, obviously, and and, and the quality that I remember Hullet playing. I think he played sweeper in that friendly against Plymouth. And it was just weird seeing him there. You know, the guy would crop up anywhere. And there was that total football kind of ethos, you know, like, oh, he's a you know an ancestor of Ajax. He's a guy, he's a legacy player from that era where he can play anywhere, he didn't do anything. But there very much was that kind of, they created that that kind of mentality at Chelsea where there, there was a bit more flair. And obviously when, because what happened with Viali? Gav, did you um, did you have a dig around uh, Hillett and Viali while you were uh, prepping? Uh, yeah, it's so super. I mean, Chelsea as a whole is is very interesting. I was uh, looking at um, a site that records essentially the points per game uh, earned by uh, managers in the Premier League, and you know, five of the top twelve, six of the top fourteen managers in points per game. Um, with Chelsea managers, wow. yeah, and that's yeah, it, it speaks, I guess, to how successful they have been for the last twenty years, and maybe to a degree how you know impatient or how happy they are to move quickly if they think they can they can upgrade or or, or change situations. Um, I mean, you know, Viali, like you said, came in and you know in his in his first season uh, won won two two cups with uh, with Chelsea, so immediate success and. You know, the the interesting thing is is how few of these managers uh, went on to long term success. You know, Viali, not so much. You know, had the short spell at, at Watford amongst other teams, and uh, uh, you know, Hullet, It didn't definitely did not get better than at, at Chelsea. The the Newcastle period is is infamous for his falling out with uh, with Alan Shearer, yeah. uh, and yeah, other things. And you know, he had very short stays at most most clubs and. Of course, yeah. You know, maybe ultimately the most successful of all their you know, former players who then become you know, managers by default is Roberto Di Matteo, who yes. you know, goes and wins the big one, which <laughs> is almost absurd, really, because he he didn't make it past was it October uh, the following season? Yeah, you know, it's uh, imagine winning the the European Cup and then sort of being told actually you, you you're not that great. But I think you. Know, that also speaks to how Chelsea has always forever seemed to be a club that's as much run by a senior footballing staff as it is, as it is demanded. Even before that sort of Lampard, Drogba, uh, Terry era, you know, obviously that team that Viali uh, took on from her, you know, a lot of senior professionals. Um, and that was their policy at the time. They would bring in players at their peak or just past their peak, you know, Desai, Deschamps and... And you know Viali himself, and and so many others. It was quite an amazing turnover of, of talent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I mean, it, I was going to say that when it did actually, they spent a lot of money uh, on players, probably with not a lot of resale value, and the club was on the brink, wasn't it, until Bramovich uh, came in and, and changed everything. It's that's incidentally, I think we're speaking on. Uh, it is, um, yeah, it's uh, eight years to the day since um, Roberto, it's Tuesday, uh, since Roberto Matteo was, won the, the Champions League for Roman Abramovich. And wow. John Terry uh, dressed in his uh, kit. And, um, yeah, um, and, I mean, I went to that game 
and uh, you know he's in the press conference after. And obviously the questions were, you know, are you going to stay on? Are you going to stay on? And uh, Di Matteo was trying to brush it away. He kept saying, hey, I'm just going to go on my holidays and we'll see what happens and all that. Yeah. And it was, I think at the time, uh, and this, this shows, uh, well, it, it, this, is, this is a big change, actually. This was at the point, I think about eight years ago, was at the point when English clubs uh, were trying to attract the best coaches in the world. I mean, it had happened a bit before that. But at that point, the man that uh, Roman Bramwich wanted was Pep Guardiola that summer. Didn't happen. Um, and, of course, it was uh, Di Matteo got the job um, temporarily, as Gareth said. Um, and, then, and then we had the Rafa thing after that, you know, a, a, another foreign manager that is synonymous with English football, actually. But, yeah. Um, yeah, eight years ago, um, and it is funny that all the money that Roman Bramwich has thrown at managers and all the managers he's probably wanted, as other than Roberto Di Matteo, it was that one that won it. And the other guy that came closest was Avram Grant. So yes. it, 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 it at that point, it was that that group of players that were carrying the club through. Uh, you know, you had Ashley Cole, you had Petchet, you had Frank Lampard, you had John Terry. And it was just that core of Chelsea that was pushing itself along with that significant, yeah, that back room and that, that that spirit of Chelsea that even though Frank Lampard's at the club now, I'm not sure that's really there. And they're having to almost rebuild that from scratch now, I'd say. Yeah, it's, it's a very different feel to it. Well, uh, in the interest of not being accused of being London-centric, let's come back after the break and uh, talk about those managers that we haven't spoken about from the Northwest. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. Okay, welcome back, guys. Uh, there was a name you uttered, uh, John. They're synonymous with Liverpool, but if we we scale it back from Rafa to maybe the first the first foreign manager at Liverpool was he was he the first foreign manager? Would you say Gerard? Gerard Houllier. Well, yeah, he was the first. Yeah, he was. But if you remember, of course, he was brought in as co-manager with Roy Evans. Remember that okay. um, uncomfortable arrangement? Um, when would that be? The I'm going to say. The 98-99 season, um, I think that's right, uh, brought in, Roy Evans is sat there, someone's come in to do your job, you're sat there um, next to him, having to pretend that you're getting on. Um, I, I've been in that situation, actually, in my own career. It's not particularly good. Uh, and uh, Roy eventually uh, 
moved on. Uh, and then Julier <clears throat> set about um, changing Liverpool. But Liverpool being Liverpool, uh, Gerard Julier um, was a fairly parochial choice because he had spent time uh, as a teacher in Liverpool. He actually spoke English with a, slight, with a Scouse accent because he'd learned to speak English as a Frenchman in Liverpool in the 70s. Uh, but when, when they turned to, to Julier in, uh, in 1998, there was there was this sense that they were trying to look to the direction that uh, that, that Arsenal had gone in with Arsene Wenger a couple of years before, which um, and this is a big trend. And English clubs, uh, if they don't have original thinking, they're quite happy to copy what other people do. Um, <laughs> so, so a few clubs over the years have tried the uh, next big French thing. And uh, again, here's someone that, that Gareth will recall. Um, Jacques Santini uh, is someone that washed up at um, at, uh, at Tottenham after Euro 2004, um, in which he led France to, at Euro 2004 tournament. Actually, I think they were among the favourites to win and then bombed out of. And uh, it being Tottenham of that era, they ended up with a lame duck manager. Um, what do you recall of Jacques Santini, Gareth? To be honest, very, very little. It was a very ignominious kind yeah. of time. I, I think there was, yeah, there, there was obviously a lot of you know positive talk in the media and the papers about him um, when he came in. I, I think it was just quickly revealed that he was almost a step out of time already. He was, I think, quite a, a, a traditionalist manager, quite a, quite a disciplinarian, and. Um, yeah, seemingly also a little out of out of touch with also what the Premier League was was becoming. I think he he was quite a defensive manager, which you know they've never really worked at Spurs, and no. you know, it's it's kind of it's strange that how how you know clubs can be just sort of almost um, seen as you know clubs who like to attack or defend or or, or be disciplined, run disciplined. But it yeah it it, it was very short and it was uh, very. Uh, you know, un, unfavorable to everyone. Um, the the Houdini thing is really interesting because I remember at the time it was, you know, there was so much conversation about the idea of the Liverpool boot room, that the sense of tradition yeah. and stewardship of the club was, you know, more ingrained maybe than any other. It was, you know, speaking spoken about in hushed tones. And, you know, I wonder when you talk about Julio, whether that kind of, the pill was sweetened by the fact that he did have that history with Liverpool. And he had talked about how, like you said, in the seventies, he used to sit, stand on the, uh, you know, on the cop and watch it. And, you know, there was a club he was you know, absolutely beloved of. And, you know, I, I remember reading or hearing that when Liverpool, you know, won the, the Champions League um, under Benitez, Julio was one of the first in the dressing room and, you know, absolutely overjoyed, and obviously has you know had relationships with a lot of those players there. So it's uh, you know they they even though they went far and like you said they still you know picked someone who they felt you know understood the club, um, which is yeah interesting. It's kind of you know maybe maybe not a bad move either. You know like like we just said you know understanding the DNA of a club is is probably quite an important thing. Yeah, I I, I think on reflection as well. Julier did a good job for Liverpool. He, yes. he changed the club. Um, it had, I mean, Roy Evans was, as you, as you said, like a you know an extension of the boot room. 
Um, he came in after Graham Souness, who was another, you know, hark, another appointment that hark back to the past. Following Kenny Dalglish, it was an attempt to essentially copy Kenny Dalglish's success. And Julier came in with a fresh approach. Now, I don't think any Liverpool fans would claim that their team played fantastic football during that time. They didn't. And they didn't really under Rafa Benitez either. But his focus and his expansion of Liverpool, uh, Liverpool's horizons, and they did win a treble of trophies, didn't they, in 2001? Mm-hmm. Uh, they won the UEFA Cup, beating Alaves. Um, and, yeah, he... he you know, and he was also responsible for the nurturing of Steven Gerrard. It went sour, but managerial's careers do go sour. Yeah, I think, I think, and you know, they did for Benitez as well. And I think actually, Liverpool was a very difficult club to manage. Uh, I think it probably still is. Even Jurgen Klopp would probably tell you that because of the expectation, because of the uh, traditions, because of. You know, we've seen it in recent years with even Brendan Rodgers, the fact that uh, there are collie wobbles within the club about going close to winning the title. Obviously, this season, they will win it in, in some form. Um, but yeah, Julier got pretty close at a certain point uh, and did a good job. But then it just came apart. And, you know, um, I don't think any Liverpool, I don't think there are many Liverpool fans that would begrudge Gerard Julier his part in the club's history. No, and also worth noting that, um, you know, he, uh, at Liverpool, his, his career total, he averaged 1.8 points a game, which is very, very high. It's in the, the top 10 of managers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that speaks to, you know, and this is also in the period before you had that, these kind of gaudy points accumulations that you do now with teams of uh, Klopp and Guardiola and, you know, uh, two points a game was essentially would almost guarantee you a league title. So yeah, yeah, um, it's uh, yeah, you know, like you said, some good teams did very well. There also some some you know absolutely brilliant games. You know, very memorable games. Like you said, the uh, that UEFA Cup final was 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 incredible. Um, the five five four was it, um, and uh, also that that. You know, incredible smash and grab against Liverpool in the uh, sorry against Arsenal in the Millennium Stadium yeah. in the FA yeah. Cup final. Yeah, I mean, you know, Michael Owen won uh, Ballon d'Or European Player of the Year. Mm. You know, under under Julier. Um, yeah, I mean, so it, I would suggest that it was one of those managers where there were some good moments, and fans will look back uh, fondly on that. But they were probably don't remember the football that fondly. And I do think that goes for his successor, actually, Rafa Benitez. Well, well I was going to say the, uh, the moving into that phase, because there's, there's one name, perhaps the elephant in the room, where we, we were talking about Bergkamp and the development of him as a player um, and the influence that, as you say, Julier potentially had on Gerard and his development. Um, Wenger. I got, were you working in the? Were you working on? Where were you working at the time, John? Were you were you covering any of this? Well, yeah. I mean, I moved to London in two thousand, uh, May two thousand. Actually, we're coming up for twenty years. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I, I was, you know, working as a football writer at that point. Um, and yeah, Arsenal were already the one of the best teams in the country. Uh, and, but I think post-2000, they really kicked on 
um, and that was Thierry Henry in his pomp. And I suppose you, you have to, when you look at the play, the players that um, Wenger brought to the club, Henry is top of the pile. Patrick Vieira, not much below that. Um, and then there were other players after that who, Cesc Fabregas would be a player that he nurtured. Um, I mean, the thing about Cesc Fabregas is that he, um, you know, went back to Barcelona eventually, and the word was at Barcelona that he was too English a player to really fit in with Barcelona. You can't really <laughs> argue with how good a player Cesc Fabregas was. There may be someone who's, who was, I, I think Fabregas was better as an Arsenal player than he was a Chelsea player, certainly to watch, um, because he, he, his legs went a bit, I thought. Uh, but that's because he played relentlessly from the age of yeah. 16 onwards, I'd say. Um, but yeah, Wenger, um, you know, Alex Ferguson had that, that reputation for nurturing talent, but Wenger had almost as many successes. I mean, Ashley, Ashley Cole would be, you know, if, if people are compiling their all-time great England teams, Ashley Cole's, you know, in with a shout at left-back, isn't he, with Stuart Pearce. Um, and uh, the Wenger effect, uh, you know, from that period, that early... 2000 up to 2005 when they won the FA Cup Arsenal were a real force we reckon we're the really strong team and then things had to change and um, you know uh, the Emirates is a monument to Arsene Wenger's careful husbandry of that club where he um, essentially <laughs> had, to, had to cut his cloth uh, build his team differently um, and Arsenal weren't as successful after that but um, they they didn't drop out of the Champions League until his final two seasons there. Um, he did a, a fantastic job there. I think it's fair to say that you you could say that he, he stayed on for too long. Um, but uh, you can understand why those running the club just didn't want to cut the cord with him. It's very difficult looking back. Well, hindsight's a lovely thing in those situations. Um and you look at some managers, um, you know, Wenger's a, a, probably an exception just because of the, the the vast amount of time that he spent at the club. Gareth, with um, do you feel differently about any of the Spurs managers that have come and gone in, in recent years, particularly for obviously, I would imagine Pop's almost too too recent to bit, bit raw to that one. Yeah, yeah. Too, too soon. I mean, sorry, if, mate. As as a Spurs fan, you know, looking back at the the Wenger. Uh, regime, I can promise you, is very difficult. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely, you know, just absolutely incredible. Just you know, almost reset uh, what it was to be a uh, you know a manager in, in the Premier League. Um, and I, I think one of the really interesting things is, is how he transitioned from you know that very you know almost super traditional Arsenal side with their ingrained you know social cultures and you know, problems that emerged from that. And, you know, he did that, that team that won the title in, in, in 1998 um, was almost a hybrid of, the, you know, the modern, you know, Wenger version that we think of with, you know, players like Overmars and Burkamp, but also still contained, you know, Ray Parler and, uh, and, and Adams and, and, and Keown and I think maybe even Bold still. And it was, uh, you know, really interesting that, you know, he did manage to initially merge the two. Uh, he didn't just come in with a new broom. I think he, again, sort of understood what he had and he kept that back four and Seaman intact and then kind of slowly sort of transitioned them, um, you know, un- understood the importance of that 
you know midfield and bolstered that with uh, you know with with Vieira and 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 uh, uh, Emmanuel Petit and you know it's yeah just you know absolutely absolutely amazing stuff and I I think you know this is, as much as I remember how much criticism Arsene Wenger got for essentially saying you know in that period where they were financially constrained saying that there's no value in the market I can't find anyone that isn't just massively overpriced and it did turn out essentially he was covering for the club there it now turns out that there just was so little funds available that he probably would have liked to have gone out and signed players like you know on the level of Sanchez and Ozil earlier than he did um but essentially didn't have a choice and rather than kind of you know kick up in the mud and complain essentially he just said you know it's you know, he covered and said, you know, I, I want to work with what I've got. So, you know, a very kind of noble thing. There's, there's a contrast with that kind of um, measured responsibility that does not fit well with the English football fan or with any football fan. <laughs> so it's like, uh, I, I can I, I can see the frustration. The frustrations have continued and the fans haven't changed and, you know, not much has changed at the club since those days of not being in the Champions League because you know they they haven't got back to where they where they need to be. But um, interestingly, did we did we touch on Martin Yol there for uh, Spurs, Gareth? No, I, I, was kind I, of, I have to I, say, I, I kind of wanted to push you in that direction a little bit. Yes, yeah, sorry, I, I'll stop uh, waxing lyrical about the manager of my uh, least uh, <laughs> favorite team. But so Martin Yol was was absolutely brilliant. He was um, you know a very uh, yeah, I think he was very charismatic. He was really well liked. He had, he had a great turn of phrase in interviews. He was obviously a very engaging manager. I remember once uh, you know, Spurs were, were flying quite high, and they uh, he was asked in an interview, he's like, you know, do you feel like you're there to be kind of shot at? And he says, well, you know, in uh, back home we have a phrase which is, uh, if you stick your your head out a window, you can get punched in the face. <laughs> Just an absolutely brilliant, yeah, you know, absolutely brilliant phrase. I'm not sure, what, you know, what neighbourhood he grew up in, but uh, you know, he and he was one of those. I I, I was actually uh, recently reading a, a piece with um, our right back Pascal Trimonda, um in uh, on the, the website Athletic, and you know, he said how much he loved Joel because essentially he just put aside doubt, and he was a relatively uncomplicated. It was like you know, go out and play, go out and express yourself, and. You know, he he assembled a fantastic team. You know, with players like Berbatov and and Defoe and Keane and uh, Steve Malbronk, Lennon. Um, yeah, at their peak, and you know, brought in. You know, also managed to have players like Ledley King and even Jonathan Woodgate at various points. So he had a great, great squad. And um, you know, unfortunately for him, he kind of just ran out before that team kind of peaked and and and. Uh, you know, he had a lot of players sold out from underneath him, you know, lost a lot of those, those big strikers. Um, but yeah, he, and never quite recaptured it, but yeah, he was a very, uh, he's quite a very Tottenham E manager. I think it was yeah. a good football and, you know, he did kind of typify the lovable losers a little bit. It was when Spurs were still, you know, huffing and puffing, really trying to break into that top four, but always very much more like a top six team in, in reality, so yeah, I, I have a, a huge amount of, of love for Martin Yo, and I, I think he, he's he's incredibly well liked um, at Spurs still, just because he represents. We came out of a very mediocre period; that the Hoddle period did not work. Um, David Pleat came back, and that was very you know unedifying. And like you said, there was people like Jackson Teeny and so forth, and 
um, yeah, I think he it almost felt like a sort of step, a positive step backwards to, uh, uh, yeah, I think almost reminiscent of some Spurs teams from the 80s. A positive step step backwards. That's very Escher. Yeah. Very Escher-like. Right. Uh, John, one like let's well, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute, but um, just where would you have been at that Martin Yule's time, John? Would you have been writing across the board football or were you focusing on any particular club? What, what was well, your, Where were you professionally? At that time, I was working at ESPN and I was um, I was editing the website, actually, Soccernet, it was called in those days. Um, so, yeah, I was pretty much desk-bound at that point. But, yeah, I remember Martin Yule's Tottenham as being great and Martin Yule as a, as a good guy. Um, you know, later in my career, when I went back out on the road, um, I used to go to Fulham quite a bit when he was manager there. And yeah, as Gareth said, he's pretty charismatic. He always spoke well. Um, it, again, not, I mean, it, it was over a short period, but not dissimilarly, you know, it, it went well for a while. It was good fun. He was popular with the fans. And then it, it then it stopped working. And that was pretty much Martin Yole's managerial careers. Um one fact about, uh, well, two facts about Marcignol. Uh, one of them is that his brothers are called Dick and Cock. Um, and, wow. Yeah. Um, are you so, trying to say this Martin it means something in another language, John? Is no, no. Well, his, his, it's a euphemism. I mean, many people have called me it, John. Let's, well, let's not dress this up. You no, know, well, his, his real name is like Martin or whatever. You know, <laughs> spelled, in, spelled in the Dutch way. Um but yeah, and uh, the other thing is that when Alex Ferguson was looking for someone to come in to replace Steve McLaren as his assistant, uh, after Steve McLaren went to join Middlesbrough to be their manager, he looked at Martin Yall, and uh, and I think he's written about this, and he just said that Martin Yall was too overweight to be his um, to be his assistant because he, he felt, felt that would set a bad example to his players, which. You know, a bit unfair from Fergie because I think Martin Yall would have been a good assistant manager. Um, but obviously, you know, within a couple of years of that, he, he, he was manager of, of Tottenham and, and did a good job. And uh, one of the things about that time was that Tottenham were fun to watch. You'd watch them on the TV because they did have players like Robbie Keane and Dimitar Berbatov. And, you know, that, that was what we expected from Spurs. Um because, as Gareth says, like before that, the Hoddle era, it, it was, and, and I'd actually forgotten David Pleat went back. It was just Spurs were just became a nothing club really for a bit of a time. And Marcignol, a bit like say Glenn Hoddle and Rude Hullet ten years before at Chelsea, helped change the identity of that club. Um, Spurs have had some weird and wonderful managers over that time. What I, I felt I should mention actually is AVB. Uh, he was at Chelsea as well, Villas Boas. Um, there was a guy who just wilted on both occasions, didn't he? Really, um, you know, was too clever or well, too clever. And the thing I say about my, uh, Andre Villas Boas is that he spoke English in an incredibly correct way, but he spoke in a way that, as if if you typed something in Portuguese, if you saw something in Portuguese on the internet and typed into Google Translate, it was spoken that level of precision. And that was how uh, AVB worked. And AVB just had that sort of mathematical way of working the game. Um, but 
very few emotions, I felt, till it started going wrong and he became something of a petulant child, really, uh, both at Chelsea and Tottenham. He's one of those figures that, you know, if I were so inclined, I'd, I'd like to talk to. I mean, I think he's back in football, isn't he? Is he at Marseille? Just someone who'd be interested. Yes, he's back in the Ligue 1. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what... Because he, he didn't he say that he was going to retire and do the Paris-Dakar rally? Yeah. I, mean, yeah. all, I think he had a go at it. Uh, he, did, he was yeah. in a car at some point, but he went back. I think he, he did reasonably well in Russia in the uh, in the old Petro League uh, for a little bit. But, yeah, essentially, um, like, you know, just yeah, reiterate everything you said. seemed like very dashing, very kind of almost suave and... A bit, yeah. a bit too fancy, and there was, you know, eyebrows were raised, and you know, I, I think initially, you know, the association with uh, Jose Mourinho is what got him the job, and is probably what ultimately I think led to his downfall. He was compared so immediately and quickly, and obviously, you know, at that point in, in Mourinho's career, Mourinho was untouchable. He's, he's a, you know, impossible person to be to make comparisons against, and uh, yeah, yeah. But like you said, AVB did not do himself any favors. Yeah, I think I think when Villas Boas, um, <clears throat> remember uh, Porto won the uh, Europa League. They won it in Dublin. And I went to that game, and of course, remember well, a few years before that, seven years before that, however, Jose Mourinho had pretty much announced himself with that that dash, that sort of really good, you know, shown off his credentials in a series of press conferences and by getting great results and. With the same club, ABB did the same. But he, after that game, uh, they beat, um, I think it was Braga. It was Braga in Dublin. Terrible game. Mm. Uh, and um, well, two things about that. He, 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 went, he went on this incredible, like, lengthy discourse about football. Now, if you're a journalist, you just want the quotes. And so you can sort of type them up and get it sent and then go to the pub. Now, he did 40 minutes and no one was particularly amused by this at the end because it was just him praising his own brilliance. At this point, he's probably only about 33, 34. Um, and anyway, um, so the press conference finished, and uh, but the mic was still on and he was approached by a coterie of your sort of European football experts, the type that you would see on TV these days. OK, I'm going to name one of them, Guillaume Balaguet. Um, and uh, they, they went up to the to the desk and sort of went to shake his hand, and obviously they'd all met before. And so after this lengthy technical discourse that he'd been on, the mic was on, and he just goes, "Shit game, fucking hell!" And you know, so <laughs> it, it, it showed that uh, it, that a lot of that stuff had been uh, a lot of flannel, really, because. Uh, that there was no tactical stuff to talk about in that game. It had been absolutely dreadful. But yeah, he, he Villas Boas, a, a very interesting figure. Just this sort of, he didn't fit in English football, this sort of European aristocratic figure arriving um, and just, you know, uh, he was such a poor fit for, for press conferences, for Chelsea, for Tottenham. Uh, I think there's actually a manager there, someone with some talent. So let's see how he goes in France. That's incredible. Um, have you either of you heard the story of you know Villas Boas with Bobby Robson? No. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, they were neighbours. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I still I can't get my head around this the fact that Bobby Robson. I think they lived in the same apartment block, or Bobby yeah. Robson moved into it, and then Villas Boas spoke to him and mentioned something, and and Bobby Robson invited him to 
prove his opinion or, or write him a letter and, and, and demonstrate what he knew and he gave him like a dossier on why that player deserved to be in the team or, you know, some sort of tactical feedback. Bobby Robson gave him an internship and then brought him in and then obviously the next thing he's, you know, working under Jose Mourinho and that was that. It's incredible, isn't it? Just the... Uh, Bobby Robson's got uh, his his influence in the game, but also just that pure happened, like that pure kismet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think AVB. Um, well, the fact that uh, AVB was living in the same apartment block as Bobby Robson shows you the sort of background that he's from. I think I'm right in saying that if Portugal still had a uh, had a royal family, he would be some sort of duke or something like that. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it, a, a sort of a sort of European aristocratic playboy. Um, you don't really get many of those. Although, actually, having said that, we mentioned before. I believe Gian, Gianluca Vialli is also from a similar background to that. Yes. So maybe it's Chelsea. Maybe it's Chelsea. This is it. Well, listen, James. Uh, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week and for the season. Um, uh, whatever that means, but um, but listen, thanks very much. I know we could have, we could have gone into some some other ones there, and perhaps we'll come back to this at some point uh, uh, when we're back up and running. Because um, I've really enjoyed these chats with you both over the last few weeks, looking at these and some insight and some backstories to it. And um, Gareth, what's what's going on uh, uh, with you at the minute professionally? Are things starting to ramp back up physically, or is it still you still living in the digital world musically? Uh, still very digital, trying to work out when, you know, live music might start again. And, you know, no one's quite sure. I think, you know, concerts on a smaller scale may start in the US. They're, you know, trying to roll out plans for like reduced capacity places. But it's going to be it's going to be a while. So, yeah, concentrate on, on, on making records and, and getting those 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 big singles out there. Maybe we'll go and take over TikTok like the rest of the world. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I will, I'll be looking forward to those updates. Uh, Mr. Bruin, what's what's going on uh, currently? Uh, apart from obviously Bundesliga is brought a little bit back. Are you with bated breath over the Premier League updates or football league or championship? What's what's the what's well, the what's the yeah. word of the street? Well, I think it will come back in some form. Um, certainly, the Premier League, football league. I'm a little less sure, but. Um, it's fair to say that money is taught in this regard, um, just as it has with most other parts of society's partial return to work, you know, like, like schools and so on. Um, so, yeah, we, we wait and see. Uh, lots of stories flying around there. I imagine being one of the journalists covering that story must be pretty frustrating because it's, you know, Project Restart uh, has restarted like my B-Reg Polo used to and have on a nice morning uh, when I lived in Sheffield. But, yeah, um, yeah, anyway. But, yes, um, well, you know, I, 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 uh, the Guardian are keeping me busy enough, which has been great. Uh, but, you know, I, I work on the editing side there, production side. So uh, other people do the writing of that stuff. Uh, what else have I been doing? Uh, I've been, uh, well, through boredom, I've been on eBay, and I've been looking at old shoot annuals of the 1970s, which has entertained me greatly. Um, one of the, the basics of my football knowledge was that at a school fate in about 1985, I bought the shoot annual 1974 and 1975 for, you know, 10p or what have you. And that 
formed a foundation of my football knowledge. So uh, I got all nostalgic and I started stacking them up and uh, got one here, the 1973 annual with interviews with Bobby Moore, Alan Ball and George Best. Amazing. With a picture of Peter Osgood and Frank McClintock on the cover. Now, that that's heaven to me. So there you go. <laughs> I think I think there's a there's a, there's an appetite and an audience for some documented uh, nostalgic coverage of this, John. I'm sure uh, the, I'm sure there's a social media platform that would absolutely lap this up. So um, perhaps perhaps there's a side a side gig for you while uh, all this is going on. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, if I can be bothered, you know. No, well, that's ultimately, uh, yeah, that that will be the crux. But um, I'm sure we, I'm sure we're all uh, guilty of that at the minute. And um, listen, gentlemen, um, pleasure speaking to you both uh, over the last few weeks, and hopefully, when we're back up and running, it'll be great to have you back on. Nice. Yeah, to that. You yeah. Amen. Uh, all right. Well, uh, uh, thanks for listening, in, guys. That was a whistleblowers. Wasn't that a great podcast? Now, if you've got 90 seconds spare in your day, come and listen to ours. It's called What Has He Said Now? and is available wherever you got this podcast. You're going to lose a number of people to the flu. This is a Playback Media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit playbackmedia.co.uk. Sports Social Podcast Network.